When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To all you who are expanding your bookcase because of this podcast, we appreciate you doing that and we welcome you back for another edition. I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm Kate Gibson. And I also want to thank all those people's spouses for allowing books to continue to take over their homes as they listen to the bookcase <laughs> and lose more and more space uh, in their house. Hello. <laughs> yeah. We have with us today an author. His name is Tan Tuan Eng. He has had great success with the novels he has written. There is a new one just out. The House of Doors. And when Kate called me about this book, she said, Dad, I can't tell you why I'm so much enjoying this. I love it. She said he has written a novel with one of the principal characters being Somerset Maugham, who was a writer that certainly was very prolific in the early 20th century, an English writer, enormously successful. But I'm not sure, Kate says to me, how many people remember who he was. And then she said, and it's set in Malaysia, Dad. Who's going to read a book about Somerset Mom that takes place in Malaysia? And I thought, well, okay, we can pass that one up. But she said, no, you got to read it. So I did. And I loved it. I loved it. It's beautiful. And I was just as skeptical. I mean, I read the back of it and I thought, uh, William Somerset Mom in Malaysia. Uh, okay. I approached it with skepticism. And I even pictured the conversation that Ten Tuan Ang may have had with his editor where he goes, so stay with me. I want to write a novel about Somerset Mom. No, 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 not yet. He's in Malaysia. But it's a beautiful book. It is very well written. It's a peaceful and I think beautiful journey. And it explores some really terrific themes of storytelling. Tan Tuan Ang, as he'll talk about, has a fascination with the way people recount their own stories, their own sort of revisionist and inaccurate memories as they recall their own memories. I remember a friend telling me a joke once saying, uh, I, I feel like when we're in the living room and we're telling stories about such and such who had passed, that they're standing right next to me going, you're not even telling it right. You know, so I think his fascination with the way we tell our stories and the inaccuracies we bring to our stories, either to let ourselves off the hook or the people we love off the hook. And his basically saying that there is no such thing as a reliable narrator. All of those incredible storytelling themes are woven beautifully into this novel about Somerset Mom and his travels in Malaysia. I know that sounds like an odd connection, but it's true and it's wonderfully, masterfully done. And the clincher for me was when Kate said, uh, Dad, it's one of those books nominated for the Booker Prize. Looking at the list of books nominated for the Booker Prize on the long list that you first get, then the short list, and then some book wins it. Tan Tuan Eng has written three books, just three novels. All of them have been either long listed or short listed for the Booker Prize, including The House of Doors. The earlier books were The Garden of Evening Mists and The Gift of Rain. And one thing I find in common of his books is they all have the word of. I don't know quite why he does that. <laughs> I've read The Gift of Rain. It is very powerful. It is at times a very difficult read. It's about the Japanese occupation of Malaysia and the people that were caught in between the sort of colonialist population. It's a, it's a complex 
book that, as I say, at times is very difficult to read, but I also found a very rewarding read. So The Gift of Rain is also worth reading of his. It's a very different tone than The House of Doors, but also a wonderful book. The House of Doors, just out, Tan Tuan Eng, the author. And as I say, Katie and I, well, Katie convinced me to try it. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I hope he'll talk to us because it's such a lovely book. So without further ado, to use that cliche, here's our conversation with Tan Tuan Eng. Tan Tuan Eng, it is great to have you in the bookcase. Niall Williams, who was one of our first guests, said that he felt that the first line should sort of encapsulate what is to come. Your line, a story like a bird of the mountain, can carry a name beyond the clouds, beyond time itself. It's important to all of us, the reason we read literature, but it's vital to the characters in your novels to be part of a story. Your characters, it would seem, want to be remembered as part of a story. Fair? It's actually extremely fair and highly accurate. I agree with Niall Williams that the first line should encapsulate what the entire book is going to be about. It is basically your argument in those first sentences. And that's one of the reasons why it's usually the last lines I still keep working on. Just while my editor is screaming for me to, where's the manuscript? Where's the manuscript? I'm still working on the first lines and he's horrified. (laughs) Don't know what the book is about until you finish it. Once you finish it, you can go back to the first line again and try to rework that entire thing so as to to give an idea to the reader what what, uh, the book is about. Just like the last sentence as well was actually the last sentence I had it in mind actually very early from the start. So every direction of the story was going towards the last sentence of the book. I was aiming to give it a lift at the end. I'm sort of fascinated by what the whole book is about. The book is a lot about William Somerset Mom and his life and his travel as East Asia. Why Willie Somerset Mom? I'm just sort of fascinated as to how that became a central character for this book. I first knew about him uh, in my teens when I read his short story, The Letter. I found it very compelling and very interesting to, to read. But I was even more intrigued when I discovered that he had based it on the real-life murder trial of Ethel Proudlock, which had taken place in Kuala Lumpur, where I was growing up there. So, and the fact that so many of the, my, my friends and my relatives and my teachers, nobody knew about it. Nobody knew anything about the trial, which, uh, granted, that it, it had taken place almost 100 years earlier, but it was so notorious and scandalous, nobody knew about it. But Somerset Maugham uh, dug it out. And in the process, he gave Ethel Proudlock a form of immortality, which my character Leslie is also obsessed with in, in The House of Toby, because as she said, a woman can be remembered by history either if she's a queen or a whore. Well, what about the normal average woman you know, who nobody remembers? Let me just ask a quick follow-up question to that, because I've read of Human Bondage, but that's the only Somerset Mom book that I've read. Was one of your missions to sort of remind readers of his work? I did a lot of reading and research about Somerset Mom, and I read a lot of his works, and I found that he's like, I actually prefer his short stories more than his novels. I wanted to bring Somerset Mom back into a, a form of a public consciousness again, and I don't mean it to sound egotistical. <laughs> There's not, not much I can do. I'm not world famous or anything, but just in my little way to make sure that he's, he's not forgotten uh, by the current crop of younger readers. Well, to follow up on that, you've written three books now, and they are characterized as historical fiction. But I, I'm curious as to if you can call The House of Doors historical fiction, because you're writing a story within a story. It is a story within Somerset Mom's short story, The Letter. 
So what is it? Well, the, the opening page is a door. It, it tells you to go, to go in. I was watching a, a documentary on Alfred Hitchcock on the flight over to New York this morning. And he said he, all his films, the opening scene, when, when a man enters a house, the camera tracks the character from behind. And he always shows the character closing the door, but he, you never see the door closing. He just puts a sound effect there and, and sort of a shadow of so that you the, the, the viewer thinks that he's, the door has been closed. And, and Alfred Hitchcock said, do you feel it? Do you feel that you are now inside the story? And that's the feeling that you, know, you want readers to have. For all writers, you want the reader to open the first page and then just slide into the story without even being aware of it. So The House of Doors, I don't see it as historical fiction. I agree with you. It's, uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, well, that's, I, I tried it to make, I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. That's very refreshing to have somebody say, Gee, I don't know what my book is either, but so many parts of this novel did actually happen that mom wrote about in that short story, The Letter. And now you weave into a much broader story. I went back and, and I researched a lot of what actually happened that you write about in this book and what you, obviously, because I couldn't find it in the historical research, that you obviously created. So give people, listeners, a little idea of what did happen that you have incorporated into the House of Doors and what is, is simply Tuan's imagination. Well, the Ethel Prandtl's murder trial did happen, did actually happen. It took place in 1910. Somerset Maugham did visit Malaya and the Far East, but I don't think he visited Penang on his first visit there. He went subsequently after the Casuarina Tree was published. Dr. Sidya Sen, the Chinese revolutionary, he was there as well in Penang, raising money for his revolution to bring down the Chinese monarchy. So he was there. That's about it, you know, because the House of Doors is, in a way, my attempt to reverse engineer the letter. I wanted to show how Samuel Mohan came to hear about the story and how he changed it and how how stories change from each telling. You know, he heard the story from Leslie, my Leslie, and he subsequently amended it. And this, in the process, you know, he brings us his own uh, preoccupations and prejudices and biases. Uh, the, the best reaction I had was a, a woman on YouTube. I was watching her. She reviews books, uh, an English woman somewhere in north of England. And she, she said, oh, after she read The House of Doors, she went to read the letter. And then she said, oh, hang on, yes, in the letter, this is what happened. When, and then she said, oh, hang on, hang on, that, that's fictional. Your House of Doors is fictional. So, and in the end, she said, I don't know what, what's truth and what's fiction. And that's, I, and I, just, I was just smiling when I heard that because that's exactly, I think it's a feeling that most, if not all, um, novelists want to achieve in that when your reader finish, finishes reading your novel, the reader isn't very sure that it, it was it entirely fictional or entirely historical. You know, it, it raises questions. It makes the reader uh, think and question uh, many things. So that's I think that's when the book engages with the reader because the reader has to do part of the work as well. It's not a passive relationship because if it's passive, the reader doesn't have that strong an engagement with your novel. But when the reader has to do part of the work, and that's why. We're most of the time, I try, I try to force the reader to do part of the work. I think there's a stronger bond between the story and the, the reader and the entire reading experience. A lot of your work is the main character telling their story to somebody else. And, you know, let me tell you my story. I'm going to unravel it for you. 
And I'm interested, is that technique part of that revision of memory? Did you all, when you sit down to write the books, do you know you're going to use that technique of the main character storytelling their own story? And Kate, it also leaves me wondering, since this is a character telling their own story of the past, how much we can rely on accurate memory. Mm-hmm. You can't. You just you just hope, you just go along with it. You, you try to, I think you must try to just... It must make you feel. It must make you feel something, even if it's it's not reliable. As long as your emotional reaction is there, I think in some ways it's it's authentic. It's unreliable, but it's authentic. <laughs> that, that should be my quote at the end of this <laughs> The first person narrative, I really like it because it's so intimate, isn't it? It's as if somebody is standing next to you and then he or she starts whispering to you, this is, I'm going to tell you something. And you, you, you're drawn to, you can't go away from. And it's also a much, for a beginning writer, I think it's an easier technique because straight away you sink your claws, you, you grab your reader's attention. What's the initial spark for you? Is it a character's voice? Is it a story you want to tell? Is it a time period that you want to teach readers about? Well, normally it's a character. So with the House of Doors, there was also the letter as well that was a spark. But again, I didn't know how to approach it. And it came to me that it has to be told from Leslie's point of view. Mm. And for various reasons, because of the letter, because the letter involves a woman who is very similar to her as well. So I wanted, again, to muddy the waters and make the reader wonder, okay, is Leslie in the letter based on the Leslie that I created? Or is it on Ethel Proudlock? Or is it on what? And what Leslie told someone said mom about uh, Ethel Proudlock. So you see, I'm confusing myself as well as I'm, I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, we, should, we should clarify for people who are listening. The letter that we talk about isn't just a letter. It's a short story that Mom wrote. And as you say, his short stories are certainly recommend themselves. They are beautifully, many of them written. And he was very prolific. Yes. But Somerset Mom is probably unknown to many people today. He was extraordinarily popular 100 years ago, but his works are an integral part of your book. And in this book, the city of Penang on the Malay Peninsula is a central character. Every, every author, I would suspect, wants to be popular, wants to have his books resonate with people. And yet, I th- is it somewhat risky to write themes where you're writing about a writer long ago and a city that few people know very well, and yet you still hope that people will gravitate to your book? Yeah. Does it make your editor nervous? Does it- <laughs> I really don't think about all that when, when I when, when I think of a story. So first of all, I, the, the character comes and then you start building the world around us. So, and you feel that which one is the best setting for this story you're telling. With the House of Doors, the logical setting would have been Kuala Lumpur because of the, the central trial took place in Kuala Lumpur. But yet I wanted to write about Dr. Sun Yat-sen and he was in Penang. And I just felt that Penang was a more a scenic setting because Kuala Lumpur in the early 1900s was just a mining town. It's really nothing more than that. Kuala Lumpur, which is a Malay name, it means the estuary of mud. So it's a river mouth of mud. That's hardly evocative or, or romantic, is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to get so much hate mail now from, from people. <laughs> but that's what it was called. It, it started as a mining town, tin mining town, and they called it that, the River Muddy Estuary. And Penang, there's so much history there, which you'll find out when you visit. And it's so rich with untold stories. So many more stories that, that should be told. 
And it's a sort of a, I see the, the House of Doors as a sort of the third book in my Malayan trilogy. You know, Anthony Burgess wrote his Malayan trilogy. So I'm trying to update that in my own egotistical ways. The book seems to feature a lot of characters who are venturing out to find themselves, if that isn't too simple a characterization. But you seem to be saying no matter where you go and no how hard you may try to escape some aspects of your life, you, your central essence is always there. What you are in essence doesn't change. Is that fair? Yes. I think it is. Um, that's why there's a quote there from Horace, those who cross the seas, change their surroundings, but not their soul. That's the fallacy that we all think that we can escape ourselves. We can't because wherever we go, we are bringing ourselves around. So we can't divide that and split it apart. So that's the thing that we have to accept. If we are unhappy in one place, we are going to be unhappy in any other place until we find a way to be happy in whichever place you are. Otherwise, there's no point, you know, chasing around the world. That's why I see a lot of people constantly on the move and I get a lot, some of my friends, I see them traveling very often, moving to new houses, moving to new districts or provinces, but then they are still essentially not happy with themselves. So it doesn't change. And with, with the House of Doors as well, it's, you know, Somerset Maugham was trying to escape so many things in his life. He was gay. He was trying to hide it. He was in an unhappy marriage and he was still terrified by what happened in the Oscar Wilde trials. So he, he was trying to escape, but he, he, I suppose he was cynical enough to know that you know, he couldn't escape. I'm interested. I read that you are an Aikido master. Now, I know Aikido plays a role in The Gift of Rain, but I'm also interested because you write so beautifully about it. I wonder if that art has influenced the way you write at all. It's influenced the way I live life and approach and view life. So obviously it will influence how I write. It's, uh, it's taught me to be less confrontational. It's taught me to try to see things from the opponent's point of view. So in my storyline, you know, there's never an out-and-out out bad guy character. I just can't write that to have somebody who's, who's twirling his moustache and, and sniggering away in an evil man. I can't. <laughs> I'm interested in finding the human in a monster. So. Mm -hmm. And that's more interesting to, to explore and write about than trying to write about the monster in a human mm -hmm. because that lacks subtlety. That, that, that's very easy to do. You know, you but to do the reverse, I think it's harder and more interesting, but also more rewarding and enriching. In the process, I learn a lot more about human nature and, and myself as well, as to how would I react in certain, certain circumstances. Would I be noble and brave, or would I be a coward and take the easy way out? And I think most of the time I'll be a coward and take the easy way out. The name of the book, the title, The House of Doors, it is a physical house in the story. It has a series of hanging doors suspended from the ceiling inside the house. I've never heard of a house that had a bunch of hanging doors inside, just floating, suspended something from the ceiling. So did you mean it as a metaphor? Why did you create that kind of a house? First of all, it's, it's the doors. When you go to Penang, you see that a lot of these old shop houses have the most gorgeous doors very old, painted, uh, intricate. And a lot of the, these buildings uh, have been destroyed or have been lost or torn down. So I felt it was a shame. Uh, I always wanted to have a house like that to collect all these doors. And with the House of Tools, I felt that this was a perfect novel to bring that in, to have this house. And if you think about it, the doors are all hanging in a courtyard. 
and they're like a maze with many entrances and exits. So for Leslie to walk through that, now she could enter from any point and she could exit at any point. So it's up to her the decisions that she chooses. You know? So it's in a way, it's about her life, what she's going to do with, her, with all the choices that she can choose from. You've now been on the Booker list three times. For just having written three novels. I'm just sort of wondering, as somebody who has constant imposter syndrome, like, was it the second one where you're like, yeah, I got some game. I can do this for a living. I'm okay. As I keep telling people, I should stop writing now so that I can always say, you know, all my books were nominated for that. (laughs) 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 I should just stop writing and do something else. I think it was with The Garden of Evening Mist because that got shortlisted as well. So that was was very helpful, but also sort of a confidence booster. And with this book as well, I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't expecting it to be even long-listed. First of all, because I'd been away from the writing scene for almost 10 years. Uh, And also, my book isn't overtly trendy or political, you know, because I'm aiming for something which is, I'm trying to create something which is timeless and not timely. Mm. If I could create something which is timely and timeless, I think I would be a millionaire (laughs) selling more coffees. (laughs) But I'm really more interested in something that endures, something like some said more short stories. So to do that, I didn't want to climb onto the latest fashionable bandwagon. So I was really surprised when it was picked for the uh, longest. You have mentioned the Horace quote a couple of times, which you have in the book in Latin. Thank goodness you translated for me. My old Latin classes don't stick with me, but people who dash off across the sea change the sky, but not their mindset. And it's a very central theme in this. And I think it's a, it's apt that you mentioned it now. You mentioned earlier that you're looking for a beginning to a book that people can slide into it. It's certainly easy to slide into the house of doors. Well, thank you. And any of your three books, it is a it's a lovely read and enjoyed it immensely. And the Booker people were not wrong uh, to nominate it. Thank you. Thank you. Tan Tuan Eng, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a beautiful read. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid Fire for 1020. Lesser known book you recommend to everyone. Penelope Lively's Moon Tiger. She should be more well known, but it's an incredibly understated uh, novel. Pay attention to the last paragraph where the main character, she's dying anyway in the, in the beginning. She's in the hospital and she's thinking back to her past. But the last paragraph, Penelope Lively describes how she passes on. And she doesn't even describe it. She, she just describes something in the room has depleted itself. Life has left the room, and I don't know how she does it. It, it, It's it's a beautiful piece of writing, very understated. You trained as a lawyer, and I'm curious how that training can lead to writing novels. With all due respect, the, the legal language that I write is always obtuse, and yet what you write is anything but. How did that training as a lawyer lead you into writing novels? Well, we, we, a lawyer and a, a novelist are the same. They just tell lies, isn't it? The lawyer tells lies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but jokes aside, the lawyer and the, the, the writer uses language as the tools. You know, so you have to be aware of the nuances of language. Uh, every word is loaded with so many references and meanings that when you choose to use a particular word, you really have to think about how it impacts on the reader's perception and how it impacts on the words around the stat as well, on the page. Uh, that's why sometimes it drives me insane when I, with, 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 with anger when I know that a, a writer has been lazy and you know, they use the same word very close to each other and say, look, the, the, the rhythm is wrong, the, the, the sound, the tune, the melody is just wrong. It's, it's wrong here. So they, that's the lawyer's training as well, I feel. So you've written three books. What do you do when you write the end? Do you have a ritual? No, it's because it never ends. <laughs> it goes back to the first sentence again. <laughs> it goes back to the first sentence and, uh, uh, and then you start working from the first sentence all the way to the back eh? because the first draft is always so awful. So embarrassingly, cringingly bad. So you have to keep rewriting. I love rewriting. I could do it for years. I, I love it. I hate really? getting the first draft because you're trying to create something out of nothing. It's so hard. But once you have that there, it, it's like a piece of marble. You've got the rough shape. So you can take your time and you know, chip away a bit here, do this there. It's a life where I really enjoy rewriting. I really like this answer because in some ways it's, I'll let you know what my finishing ritual is when I finish something. That's, I'll let you know. That's good. Talk me through a day when you write. Do you have a goal of a certain amount of output every day? Do you read what you've written that day to yourself to see if you have meter and flow that you want? Normally I start with going through what I had written the day before. And then just being appalled by how bad it is. <laughs> and I start re- rewriting yesterday's work before I start today. So that's why it takes long as well. You, you, you're basically stirring up yesterday's soup as well, trying to put in new ingredients. So it's, it's very laboriously slow. And yes, I do test the meter. But I don't read aloud until everything's finished, the first draft. Mm. And I lock myself in the car, in the garage, because that's where it's completely soundproof and nobody can hear. <laughs> and I'm not... 
It's the best place to read aloud. I'm telling you. Just don't switch on the engine or put the rubber hose into the, the from the exhaust. You know. I was about to say, don't people worry about you? It's like he hates first drafts. He's taken his first draft into the garage. We haven't heard from him in hours. Somebody, please check on him. Yeah, yeah, he's got the rubber hose as well. I have two words for you: carbon monoxide. Watch out for yeah. it. Yes. No, you, you don't. You, you don't switch on the car. You just you don't switch on the car. Of course, you don't read the whole manuscript in one go. You do about twenty minutes because you start becoming lazy if you read too long you start skipping words or you start thinking oh that's fine that's fine you don't see the mistakes so 20 minutes is each chunk of reading is fine and then you see the car it's wonderful you can express your inflection of the words without feeling self-conscious about it i really recommend reading it in a car reading aloud and when you get the meter right you know i don't need to rewrite that when when you feel the meter is lacking you think this is a part I have to go back and attack again? Yes, when, when I feel that the, the, the meter is off, there's something wrong with it. It doesn't sound nice on the ear, so you have to keep going there. But the problem is, if you get that sentence right, then you have to look at it in relation to the previous sentence as well and see whether the, the transition is smooth, you know, and, and the next sentence as well. So just by changing one sentence, you affect so many sentences before and after that. So it, it's uh, it's incredibly difficult to write. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't wish it on my worst enemy. Actually, I do wish it on my worst enemy, yes. Be a writer, yes. <laughs> I love the image of his going out in his garage closing the door on the car and reading his own stuff to himself for about half an hour to make sure that he's got meter and flow correctly. I think if one of the neighbors saw that, they'd think, who is this guy? He's a little crazy. I think that it's generally true for friends, spouses, children of writers. You've got John Irving's family who has to deal with the fact that he just stares out a window for hours on end and doesn't do anything. You've got Jennifer McMahon's daughter who, when she comes down and says, why do I do this for a living? Goes around page 120, mom. Yeah. So uh, you do get the sense that, you know, there's a fine line between writing and maybe questioning your own sanity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, we, do, we do. We can recommend this book without reservation. He makes Penang uh, sound so attractive. I, Kate's mother and I are going on a cruise next spring in 2024, and we're going to stop at Penang. And now I'm really fascinated to see it. I wonder how many people could pick it out on a map, but it's on the Malaysian Peninsula, just north of Singapore, just south of Thailand. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. His descriptions are so rich and beautiful. There is both a literal and a somewhat figurative House of Doors in this novel. And I am really interested now to go out and see the doorways of Penang that he describes. (laughs) I mean, the way he writes is just is rich and beautiful. And as I say, if you feel like the plot is obscure, trust me, it's not. You're really going to love this book. It's a beautiful read. And I was really glad I picked it up. The frontispiece of this book I sort of like because it's well borne out by the book itself. Fact and fiction. This is a Somerset Mom quote that he uses in the frontispiece. Fact and fiction are so intermingled in my work that now, looking back on it, I can hardly distinguish one from the other. And since this book is based loosely on some events that actually occurred, I think that quote is very apt. 
What does my husband say about me? Kate never lets real truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> um, anyway, That's true. That's true. <laughs> a reminder about the uh, folks that make this podcast possible. And then a closing coda for Antoine Ang. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. Well, let's use the Horace quote, you know. Horace wrote that those who travel across the world change their sky, but not their souls. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.